How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our Bible study this time, let's uh, take a few moments to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear. Psalm 66.18 makes it clear that the believer who is out of fellowship is in a position where his spiritual life is inactive. Uh, God will not actively listen to his prayer, and his spiritual life is, we know from the New Testament, is uh, stagnant in reverse course because he's walking according to the flesh. So we have to confess our sins. And so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship with God through confession of sin, the use of 1 John 1, 9, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are so grateful we have your word to come to at times of uh, difficulty, times of challenge in our life. And, and Father, as we study your word, we are uh, frequently hit with things that we must correct, things that we must straighten out in our own lives and in our own thinking. And the command that uh, Jude gives to this congregation to contend for the faith is certainly one of those, that uh, though the focal point here in the original context was contending fighting, striving for the purity of doctrine in the early church in the context of false teachers who had snuck into the congregation. Too often we have ideas in our own thinking that have stealthily crept into our, our thinking and our ideas and negatively influence uh, our spiritual life and what we think. And so we need to root these things out. We need to contend for the truth. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Jude, we pray that you'd give us the wisdom, the courage, the skill to, to contend for the faith within our own souls as well as externally in the church and in the culture around us, and that we might always desire to walk consistently according to the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing today in our study in Jude. Jude focuses on these false teachers that have, as we'll see in our study this morning, uh, crept into the congregation. Uh, they've snuck in. They have come in uh, uh, in a way that is unnoticed, and they have infiltrated uh, the ranks of the church so that their ideas, their false ideas, have begun to have an impact. Uh, they sound good. And yet they are erroneous, and they are beginning to distract people and divert people in terms of their spiritual life. And so Jude writes this lesson to challenge them to contend for the faith. Now, in the last few weeks, as we have looked at this, I've pointed out that uh, what the main purpose here is that, that Jude had intended originally to write uh, in relation to the doctrines of soteriology, but Instead, God the Holy Spirit, in the process of inspiration, notice this isn't a mechanical dictation kind of idea of inspiration, but we see how the Holy Spirit works uh, in and through and behind the scenes, and what the Holy Spirit is doing here is uh, challenging him, to moving him to write on a different topic, to deal with the false teachers that have now entered into this congregation in fulfillment of the warnings found in, in Second Peter. And so he says he found it necessary to write to you challenging them to contend earnestly or vigorously or to strive vigorously for the faith. And we know that this is a term that is used in relation to, um, relation to wrestling and an athletic activity, epongenizomai, struggling, striving, contending, contending for the, uh, for the faith. There. To strive, to contend earnestly, to exert intense uh, effort on behalf of something. Now, we have to do this, as I pointed out in the past, in different spheres of our life. First and foremost is in terms of our own thinking. 
I think that was a challenge. That's the feedback I've gotten from people as I went through the last few lessons dealing with how our thinking has been shaped and influenced by the culture around us. Now, every culture has thinking that is reflective of the thinking of Satan as a rebellious creature to God. And if you have studied with me for very long, then you know that I boil that down to two basic characteristics. Two basic characteristics which have to do, first of all, with autonomy. The the individual asserts his autonomy, his independence from God, uh, exerting a self-law, that that we know what's best, not God. So the individual sets up himself as the ultimate authority. Now that can manifest itself in different ways, but we don't just stop and say, well, it's autonomy, because autonomy manifests itself differently in different ways of thinking. And I've pointed that out in terms of the ways in which we come to know or think we come to know truth. If we are a rationalist, there are different forms of rationalism. Uh, The rationalism of Plato asserted an idealism, that there was an uh, ultimate ideal reality, and what we see on the earth today is simply a shadow of that. Then there was another uh, shape of that that came along towards the end of the first century, second century A.D. called Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism advocated by Porphyry. And then later on, uh, you had a rejection of Platonism and Neoplatonism and the assertion of an empiricism by Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle emphasizes that knowledge comes from what we experience with our senses, what we see, what we taste, what we touch, uh, what we smell, what we, what, uh, all of these make up our, our senses, what we observe, what we have in empirical direct content. With, that's how we know we're born with this blank slate, or as he put it, a tabula rasa, and it is written upon by our experiences. Now, none of us would be so flippant as to say that, well, if you understand uh, Plato and Aristotle, then you don't really need to deal with Cartesianism, that is the f- philosophy of Descartes, Neither do you need to deal with the empiricism of of uh, uh, <clears throat> Barclay, Locke, or Hume. Uh, we wouldn't be that flippant because we know that in each generation, in each age, what Satan does is he takes his core idea, the core idea, whatever that may be, whether it's a rationalism, an empiricism, or a mysticism, and he camouflages it in new culturally adapted, culturally acceptable vocabulary, forms, ideas, things of, of, uh, of that nature. So it's always important to understand how Satan's original thinking of autonomy and also, and I point out the second characteristic, is an antagonism to God, an antagonism to God, the two A's, autonomy and antagonism, and how they are mixed and how they are mingled in these different human viewpoint uh, philosophies and they all reflect satanic thought. Now we could say, see, you know, everything's just a footnote to the to the fall. And in one sense, it is. Just as uh, modern philosophers have observed that all of philosophy is simply a footnote to Plato. But we don't just stop there. We have to analyze the thinking of the culture of our day because that's the manifestation that we see today. And that's how it is expressed today. It's the same old lie, but it's always given uh, new clothes. Granted, they are the emperor's new clothes, and they don't uh, cover anything. But there there is this facade that's there, and we have to uh, penetrate it and expose it in our own thinking. And so that's where contending begins is in our own thinking we are to do it in with earnestness with with willingness with diligence it is to be a conscientious objective we are to contend earnestly for the faith clearly showing that this is a set body of doctrine we start with our own thinking 
Then we work out to the thinking of those in our immediate vicinity, the family. For example, fathers are given the responsibility to train up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So it is within the realm of the family that we contend for the truth. And then as we move out into the context of the church or the congregation, one of the things that is distinct about West Houston Bible Church is that we have a, a detailed doctrinal statement. And one of the reasons we do that is not because I expect everyone who is a member of the congregation to understand all of the theological nuances and details that are there, but so that they, when they read that, not just a short summary, but when they read the entire doctrinal statement of the congregation, uh, then they understand why we hold to the distinctives that we do. And it helps us also to have a standard that everyone has agreed to that it then becomes the basis in case there is someone who does slip in and and begins to teach something that is not acceptable, we have a standard by which to uh, judge, evaluate, and to take action. So we work our way out from our thinking to the environment of the family, the church, and then around us. Now, one question did come up that I was asked, and I'm Surprised I haven't been asked this before, and that relates to the charts that I use for expressing the four ways in which we come to know things. Now, this is important to understand the purpose of this chart. The chart is designed to show the ways in which we come to know something to be true, and there are four basic ways that people have uh, identified how we come to know something to be true. I've divided them into two groups. The upper group, which will contain four different systems, identifies autonomous systems of perception. Autonomous is an independent or self-law system of perception. If you recognize immediately, that's the first characteristic of human viewpoint thinking, of Satan's thinking before the fall. So all satanic thought is equivalent to human viewpoint thinking, which is equivalent to worldliness. It has different different manifestations, different emphases, different, um, different proportions of ingredients, but it's all basically the same thing, autonomy and uh, antagonism to God. Autonomy, independence from God, antagonism uh, from God. Now, when we look at these, as I've put them up on the screen in the past, we have these top three views, empiricism, mysticism, and <clears throat> rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism, set completely over against revelation. Now, I've chosen to call this category revelation because we are dealing with the Bible and the authority of God and God's revelation or unveiling of his truth to us, truth that we cannot know, apart from rationalism, I mean, excuse me, apart from his revelation. We can't know it by rationalism. We can maybe guess, approximate, come close, but we can't know it for sure. Uh, we may not even know it at all. Uh, empiricism doesn't get us there. It may We may learn a lot of things through empiricism, but we don't learn everything. There are certain things God has chosen to reveal to us that that form, that, that, that's the critical missing information, that without it, we're just guessing. We're like blind men in a dark room. Uh, uh, but revelation gives us the information we need. It turns the light on so that we can then properly uh, organize, understand, interpret wh what it is that we have experienced or what has gone through in our reason. Now, the question that came up is, What's the difference between, or why can't we say that, that faith is a means of, of coming to know things? And it, it is. Faith is certainly a means of coming to know things. But faith, what I've emphasized here is faith is what undergirds all of these. And, and that's for three reasons. Number one is the hidden assumption in rationalism is faith in human ability. I believe that man has the innate ability in his mind to starting from first principles, starting from uh, assumptions that man can start and achieve 
truth and know everything. This was what both Plato and Descartes did, uh, apart from and distinct from utilizing knowledge that can't, comes from the senses. Uh, that would be empiricism. Empiricism uh, starts, the starting points are what is perceived through the senses. Uh, and then that writes itself upon the, the, the mind, and this is when knowledge then begins to be organized by the mind. Mysticism is the dark side of either rationalism or empiricism. Rationalism and empiricism believe in the rigorous use of logic. Mysticism rejects logic. It is inherently irrational, but but all, its starting point is what's between the ears, what is perceived mentally through some sort of internal uh, internal perception, feeling, experience, something like that. And so it's the, the flip side, the dark side, of rationalism or empiricism, it's the irrational side. But in all of those, there's an implied faith in human ability, the human mind, to correctly organize uh, the information. So even though they don't talk about faith, there is an implied faith there that man can know enough and can come to truth through the use of his own uh, faculties through the use of his own brain. So, first point is faith undergirds all of these. The object of faith is what's different. Faith is either in human reason, faith is in human sense perception, faith is in the the reality, the immediate sense or or uh, uh, intuited meaning of the mystical experience, or faith is in revelation. Among philosophers who talk about things of this kind, what they will use instead of the term revelation is authority. We learn something from an authority tells us something. We don't arrive at it through our own reason. We don't get it through uh, from a starting point of empiricism. It is something <clears throat> that we are told by an authority. We trust the authority. So the authority that we're trusting is the word of God. And it is God who has revealed himself in his word, and so we believe God's word. So at, at the root, everything goes back to faith. And this is, uh, when, when discussing this with uh, someone, for example, who is an unbeliever, who is an, who is an evolutionist, his whole theory ultimately hangs on his faith in being able to uh, organize the the sense data of the of the uh, fossils of what he sees in the stars of his scientific information, and that he can organize that and extrapolate from just an infinitesimally small amount of data he can extrapolate out to to understand the true meaning of of the universe and yet if he 's missing just one critical piece of information then it can completely destroy every theory that he sets up, no matter how brilliant it might be, because his faith is in the wrong object. So all of these systems of knowledge have are based on faith, ultimately. Faith in human ability, faith in God's word. One or the other. Those are the only, uh, those are the only options. Now, just a couple of verses to reinforce the fact that we are to be engaged in this sort of personal personal battle to root out, to contend for faith in our own, uh, in our own thinking. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. Paul says, I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence with which I intend to be bold against some. I think there he's alluding to the fact that he's irritated, angry with some, and he doesn't want to come. Uh, he knows that that's wrong. It's coming out of his sin nature, and he doesn't want to uh, uh, confront them on that basis. But he says, uh, these are the, the ones who think that we walk according to the flesh, his critics. <clears throat> and in verse 3, he says, for though we do walk in the flesh, that is, in our human bodies as mortals, we do not war according to the flesh. That's not how we handle those who are in opposition. We do not war according to the principles of the sin nature, out of anger, resentment, bitterness, vindictiveness. Uh, we war 
on different on a different basis. And then in verse four, he says, "For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal; that is, not fleshly, not of the sin nature, but mighty in God." That's the source for pulling down strongholds. And what he does here is he's using a military metaphor of warfare, and he uses a term for a fortification. And we all have fortifications in our soul protecting these cherished areas of autonomy and antagonism to God because we think that helps us understand reality and it helps us make life work. And we have to pull those down. We have to destroy them. We are on a search-and-destroy mission from God to wipe out every place where we are holding on to these human viewpoint ideas. And that involves casting down arguments and every high thing. So we're to be involved in analyzing, critiquing, and refuting arguments in support of the positions set forth by the world system of our day. We can't be dismissive and just say, well, you know, it's postmodern, it's relativism, Satan was the first relativist. That's all true. Well, Plato was the first rationalist, so why read Descartes? Why understand the different forms that rationalism took? Why deal with the reaction to rationalism, which was empiricism? Because each of these takes on different, uh, different aspects, different nuances, different dimensions, and that is how s Satan uses those little subtleties to drive wedges into our soul to separate us from the truth of God's Word. So casting down arguments in every high thing, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God <clears throat> by bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of, of Christ. Every thought. That's not, just thinking, that's not just talking about the content of the thought. It's not just talking about a thought that is perhaps a mental attitude sin, a thought of anger, a thought of hatred, a thought of bitterness. It is talking about thinking the areas of intellection in hum the human history, areas of the arts, areas of literature, areas of politics, areas of government, areas of law, every area of thinking needs to be brought under the spotlight of the Word of God, and the <clears throat> that which is not part of God's Word or is not, uh, can't be uh, derived from God's Word, is excluded. It's not within the framework of divine thought. We need to bring every thought into uh, captivity, into the obedience of Christ. Now, in our age, we have as part of our mental baggage, and the younger the person, the more this is as is, is part of their mental baggage, they have certain ideas that they've picked up from the culture around them, and part of this comes from the idea of multiculturalism. And in multiculturalism, we have the idea that everything is good. Every culture produces its own values. Every culture is good. There's no, because there's no external reality beyond human existence, there's no overriding ultimate criterion for evaluating that's making evaluations that one culture is good and one culture is evil. In practice, you'll notice they can't do that. Sooner or later, they use words like, well, that's wrong. That's evil. Usually they use it against Christians. Well, Christians are wrong because they're so judgmental. Why isn't that so judgmental? the attitude that they, they just expressed. Why is it that they're the only ones who are allowed to be judgmental uh, against Christ, Christians and against those who hold to oppose, views that oppose theirs? But that see, that's the problem with their, uh, with their consistency. So as part of this idea that all cultures are equal, whether it's an Islamic Islamicist culture that is going out and uh, abusing women and <coughs> uh, attacking women in, in any number of different ways, uh, promoting uh, their form of jihadist warfare, uh, that that culture is superior to a Christian culture that is based not on jihad and destroying the enemy, but is based on, on love for God and love for one another. <clears throat> but modern man in postmodernism thinks that all these cultures are equal. So for them, one of the worst evils is to evaluate any form of thinking, and to conclude that somebody else's form of thinking is wrong or somebody else's form of thinking is, is judgmental. 
Uh, so if you uh, are involved in contending for the faith, the very fact that you think that there's something that you should contend for that is superior sets you at odds with the culture. You are by definition bad. Uh, I've had this happen to me as, as, as a pastor where I'm critiquing a thought system, a uh, theological system from the pulpit, and people say, well, you're going to offend somebody if they come in here if their background is is what you're talking about, and then uh, uh, they hear that, then that's going to offend them. That has no place in the pulpit. Well, if it has any place at all, it's in the pulpit. And the truth has to be taught in a matter that is uh, contending for the faith and not, not necessarily contentious. You're not out trying to beat people up with the Word of God, but you are trying to make sure that it's clear that there are Christian thought systems that are not consistent with the Word of God, and there are of course, all non-Christian thought systems are not consistent with the Word of God. But part of the mental baggage of our culture is that inclusiveness is good, and any form of exclusivity, any form that excludes others not participating in salvation is inherently bad. And so they impose that standard upon God and the conclusion, therefore, well, if God's only going to save some, then he must be a bad God. See how everything gets completely turned around. And in this kind of a framework, Christians become the enemy because they reject cultural, uh, the cultural main, mainstream. So there is a battle for the mind that is, uh, that is going on. Now, <clears throat> so we get into the next verse in Jude. We're going to get into the core area of, of this epistle, talking about the fact that there is a set group of men referred to as ungodly, the ungodly, uh, in verse 4, who have turned or perverted the grace of God into licentiousness or lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The body of this epistle is going to focus on uh, these opponents and the certainty of divine judgment upon those who have, who have uh, rejected God's truth and who are false teachers. And in the context of Jude, he's dealing with a specific historical situation where the source of this false teaching is coming from unbelievers, and that's very clear in the text. Even though believers can be influenced by false teaching, un, uh, true, born-again, children of God can promote false teaching that's not, the, that's not the situation Jude is facing. These are not believers who have been subverted, but these are unbelievers who are subverting believers, and so the job of the believer is to contend for the faith. Look at how these opponents are described in, in Jude. Here is a uh, list of them going through the, uh, uh, going through the passage. They are called godless men in verse 4. We're going to see that that term, godless, is a term that is always used of unbelievers. Believers are not godless. They may act like the godless, but they are not godless. They are not uh, the ungodly. Uh, they <clears throat> change the grace of our God into a license for immorality in verse 4, they deny Jesus Christ. Again, that indicates uh, unbelief. They are compared to Sodom and given over to sexual immorality in verse 7. They are compared to dreamers who pollute their own bodies in verse 8. They are like un compared to unreasoning animals in verse 10 who destroy themselves. They are blemishes or spots or some translations have um, <clears throat> underwater reefs upon which you shipwreck yourself uh, at your love feast, verse 12. They are shepherds, so this indicates they're in positions of leadership. They're shepherds who feed only themselves, verse 12. They're clouds without rain, trees without fruit, wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. They're wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved. And again, another term for the eternal judgment. Uh, verse 13, they're identified by characteristics such as grumbling, fault finders, uh, boasting about themselves in verse 16. They're scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. Verse 18, 
They do not have the spirit. Now, we'll deal with the translation there. That shouldn't be a capital S. It is in most of your translations. It has to do with the human spirit or that which is gained, that immaterial part of man which is gained at the point of regeneration. So that verse, verse 19, is referring to a lowercase s, not an uppercase s, indicating they're not believers. Uh, They flatter others for their own advantage, verse 16, and they're people who are divisive in verse 19. This is describing this group of ungodly, which means they're unbelievers. Now, that does not mean that believers can't do this, because anybody who's been a pastor for any length of time knows that there are Christians who can fit any or all of these characteristics. In my very first church, which the name of which I won't mention, uh, there were a lot of people like this. And uh, I bel- and, and they were they were believers, but they had not been taught doctrine, or they had been negative to doctrine for many years. They were just extremely divisive. They were running their little country club, and they were not focused on the the, the faith as their primary objective. All right. Well, let's get into verse four. Verse four. Jude explains why he's given this command to contend earnestly for the faith. It's indicated by that first word in the English for, or the Greek word is gar, which always indicates the giving of an explanation, uh, explaining why something is a certain way. And so the reason we are to contend for the faith, that is, strive for the faith, is because there are enemies of the faith who have snuck in who have crept in, who have uh, joined with the church, but it is not obvious that they are unbelievers. They are covert disciples of Satan who have infiltrated the local church and are the root and the cause and the source of false teaching and false doctrine causing division within a congregation. And so they are identified here as certain men who have crept in unnoticed. This is the uh, Greek verb parisduno. Parisduno, it's in the aorist tense indicating it's just simple past action. This is what has taken place in the past. Uh, It has already taken place, whereas the warnings in Peter are that this is future, warning of future uh, false teachers coming in, in 1 Peter. This is those who have already entered into the congregation, they have snuck in. It is a something that they have already do, accomplished, something that they have already done. <clears throat> they turned the. They have crept in unnoticed. This word "paris duno" is translated a number of different ways. It has the idea of creeping in, sneaking in, stealthily, covert activity, uh, infiltrating a group. This is the work of a spy. This is the work of a saboteur who has come in with the intent to destroy something. They've snuck in secretly and crept in in order to uh, destroy something. So there are certain men specific ones that Jude is warning about who have crept in and they're not noticed. It's not obvious. It's like uh, uh, some people get all uh, wrapped around the axle because uh, Jesus was sending out his 12 disciples and they were casting out demons and they were healing the sick and all of these other things. And Judas was part of them. So well, Judas must have been a believer. Of course, that flies in the face of more specific revelation just because some small-minded person can't comprehend how how Judas, as an unbeliever, could operate within the context of the other 11 and uh, cast out demons uh, and heal people in the name of Jesus. It, just because that escapes them is how God would allow that to happen, and it's very clear that God did. Uh, they jump to the conclusion that Judas must have been a believer, but Judas... Judas, we're told in John chapter 13, was indwelt by Satan. Satan, uh, ace erkamai. Satan entered into him. That is your technical term in almost every demon possession passage in the New Testament that tells you it's demon possession and not demon influence. That entering into word is the word that tells you that one being goes inside another being. And believers clearly cannot be demon possessed. 
And uh, furthermore, <clears throat> Ju- uh, uh, Judas Iscariot is referred to as a son of perdition, and that is a term uh, in the Greek. The term translated perdition is the word for those who are are, are lost. Uh, those in, uh, for example, John three sixteen, those who do not believe in <clears throat> in Jesus Christ are are those who do not receive eternal life. It's the same word used for perdition. So that indicates that he is not uh, not a believer. So they, they are crafty. They, they camouflage themselves. It's not hard. Remember, God calls all of us sheep. And sheep are pretty uh, blind and, and pretty dumb. And if it weren't for the shepherd to guide them, they would all die of hunger, uh, Five feet away from food, they would die of thirst. Five feet away from water, uh, so so sheep aren't real perceptive, and most Christians aren't very perceptive. And somebody comes in, and they have a wonderful personality, and they they love the church, and they say all the right things. Uh, like a politician, they don't see through that veneer, and so that's what happens. They come in, <clears throat> they come in stealthily. They come in, and they infiltrate the congregation. But they're described in the text as a category of individuals who have been identified uh, from the past, from previous writings. This would be the Old Testament writings. They have been identified in Old Testament writings. The word there in the Greek is prographo, meaning writings beforehand. So they've been identified through previous revelation as as those who are marked out for condemnation, they will be judged by God. Unbelievers will bring will reap the judgment of God either in time or in eternity or both. So they are certain men who have stealthily infiltrated the congregation, who previously were identified or written about in terms of this condemnation. And then they are called ungodly, the Greek word asabeth. Asabates. There's a word that you've heard me use before, the word godliness. The Greek word eusebeia starts with an E-U-S-E-B-E-I-A. You can look at this word on the screen. It's A. That's your prefix. The root is S-E-B-E-T-A, S-E-B-E-S. And that has to do with that which is related towards God. So eusebeia has to do, that EU prefix has to do with something that is pleasing, something that is good, something that is positive. The A prefix, the alpha privative it's called, uh, asabase means not. It's equivalent to the English prefix UN. And so asabase indicates those who are without God. Now, some people may say, well, I know some Christians that are pretty ungodly. But you're using the term in a way that the Bible really doesn't use that term ungodly. It's not a term that you can clearly point to any place where it's used of believers. Ungodly is used in, in, in most passages. It's very clear it's believers, and the rule in hermeneutics is always you move from the clear to the unclear, from the specific to the vague, and it becomes very clear. There's only one place where it could possibly mean or include unbelievers, but uh, the reality is that that if you take all the other uses where it's clearly referring to unbelievers, then that clarifies that one uh, somewhat vague uh, passage. Let's just look at a couple of these places. In Romans chapter 4 and 5, now remember the context of Romans 4 and 5 is justification. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Justification means that when we believe in Jesus as Savior, at that instant, God the Father simultaneously imputes or credits to our account, assigns to us the righteousness of Christ. The, the terminology is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. It is ours at that instant. It doesn't change us. He, it's not imparted to us. We don't become righteous in a, an experiential sense. It is ours positionally or legally, and it is assigned to us in an accounting type of procedure, a judicial type of procedure. And so at that instant that that is assigned to us, God looks at us, sees that we are righteous, 
and he declares us legally to be justified. Okay, so justification then in Romans 4 is the, the model is Abraham. Justification is on the basis of faith. And on the basis of faith, it is righteousness is credited to us. Not on the basis of our works or our morality. So Romans 4, 5, Paul says, But to him who does not work, that is the person who is trusting in Christ alone, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Now, at the, act of, at the instant of salvation, God the Father is imputing righteousness to an unbeliever at the instant that he believes. The ungodly is being justified. That's the process. So the word ungodly there clearly means the unbeliever. <clears throat> the one who justifies the unbeliever. God justifies us at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone. Romans 5, 6, talking about the work of Christ on the cross. Paul says, for when we were still without strength, when we were still sinners, he says in 5, 8, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for believers, he died for unbelievers. Ungodly is a term that describes those who are without God, without Christ, without hope, without eternal life. We see it again in Second Peter. Remember, Second Peter, First Peter, and Second Peter are very close to Jude in their themes. In Second Peter two five, talking about the flood, worldwide flood at the time of Noah, uh, we read that God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people. Noah and his wife, the three sons and their three wives, added up, and it's eight people. Two times four is eight. Four couples. Parents, three children, and their wives is a total of eight people. Everybody else in the world heard the message of salvation from Noah. Everybody else in the world rejected it. Everybody in the world at that time, except for those eight, were unbelievers. And so they are called here... Um, that, that God, that Peter, I mean, excuse me, that God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. The ungodly is, again, it's a term used that is synonymous with all of the unbelievers in the world. And then we see another example, one from the flood, and then in Second Peter 2.6, uh, Peter uses another example, of God's judgment, he's going to use these same kinds of examples, uh, Jude rather, is going to use these same kind of examples in, in Jude coming up, uh, the, Sodom and, the flood, the Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So that those who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plains, were called ungodly. Remember, in Genesis 19, just before God judged and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he informs Abraham that he's sent his, sending his two angels to, to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy the cities of the plains because of their sexual perversion. Abraham enters into this little dialogue with God and says, well, if there's a hundred righteous people there, would you deliver it? God says, yes. If there were 50, if there were 25, works down the numbers. If there were 10. The point that Abraham's getting at is his nephew Lot and his wife and his daughters live there, and he wants God to preserve them. Those are the only ones considered righteous. Later on, Lot is called righteous Lot here. And, and Lot's the only one that's saved. All the others are ungodly. They're unbelievers. And so God brings that judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So here again, we have that example of ungodly describing unbelievers, not believers. Second Peter 3, 7 then says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition. See, that's that same word describing uh, Judas, the son of perdition. The perdition of ungodly men. It's those who will be destroyed because they did not believe in Jesus Christ. Eternal destruction in the lake of fire. And it's ungodly men. Again, it's unbelievers. So 
Here's the verse a little clearly. Uh, Perdition of ungodly men. So here we see very clearly that ungodly is a term for unbelievers. It does not include believers. It's not related to carnal believers. It is a term that is used exclusively of unbelievers. So Jude says there are certain men who have stealthily infiltrated the local church, bringing in false doctrine. These men were identified as a category in the previous writings in the Old Testament as those who would be brought to judgment. That's the theme of this epistle. Judge God judges uh, false teaching. Marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, and what have they done? What have these unbelieving men done? They have perverted the grace of our God. They have changed it. The term is metatithemi. It is. Uh, it describes the removing something, changing something, transforming something. It is metatithemi to, to exchange one thing for something else. So they're exchanging the grace of God for licentiousness. Those are the opposites. Grace of God do, it doesn't give you permission to sin. The grace of God provides you with a solution and recourse if you do sin. It doesn't mean that because Christ has paid for the sin that we can just sin at will, but that if we do sin, then God is faithful and we confess our sin. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a, uh, <clears throat> there is a recourse. There's a, um, there's a means of recovery that just because we fail doesn't mean we're lost. But there's a means of recovery. But these men are teaching, no, 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 God is great. Look at all this grace. These, these are like the men that, that Paul is dealing with in his argument in Romans 6. But if we've sent, if, if we got grace because we sinned, let's go sin more so we can get more grace. It is uh, <clears throat> uh, licentiousness. So they turn the grace of our God, which is unmerited favor from God, into lewdness is how the New King James translates it. And it is the idea of... of uh, licentiousness. It has the idea of sensuality. It often refers to sexual sin, uh, sexual immorality, either fornication, uh, any form of sodomy, homosexuality, lesbianism, any form of sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. So sensuality, licentiousness, a lack of self-control, working outside the bounds of God's standards. And thinking that well, it's just fine because God's grace, uh, God's grace has has covered it. This is the idea of licentiousness, a license to sin without retribution, without consequence. And second, they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that term, they're translated Lord for Lord Jesus Christ, is a term for despotes, which is a term that's used. It refers to his sovereignty, his authority. It's used in Second Peter two one, and in both of these passages, are talking about unbelievers again. Second Peter two one says that as a, also a warning: there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be. Notice that future tense: for false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. This is the Second Peter warning of future false teachers. Jude is dealing with the present reality of those false teachers, the fulfillment of the Second Peter warning. Even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord, the despotes, the Lord, the sovereign Lord who bought them and bring on themselves with destruction. This is a, also a great passage for unlimited atonement, that Christ died for the lost. He paid the penalty. They deny the Lord who actually bought them. And so in verse 4, we see this warning that these, these infiltrators are there teaching destructive heresies, which will destroy the spiritual impact of the congregation. It will wipe out the spiritual growth of the individuals. Why? Because they fail to contend. So what's the solution? Is to contend for the truth. First and foremost, we have to know the truth. And so from the here, uh, Jude will go forward, and he talks about 
examples of how the Lord in the past has brought judgment on this kind of people, this kind of people. He says, I want to remind you, or I want to bring back to your memory, though you once knew this. He says, in other words, what he's saying is you've been taught this in the past. I just want to bring this back to your recall that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, uh, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, here he's using an example of God's judgment on false teachers that included believers. So he's not making a distinction here between believers and unbelievers. It's clear from everything he says in the epistle that he's talking to a historical situation where the false teachers were believers. His point is that God judges false teachers. He applies it to the to his current situation where the false teachers are unbelievers, but he also will use examples of God judging uh, false teachers who are believers. Because the principle that he's talking about is not God judges unbelievers or God judges believers, but that God judges false teachers. In this context, they're unbelievers. But the example he uses here in Jude 5 is of the rebellious grumblers that were part of the group of of, of saints that came out of, uh, of Egypt, the, the Israelites, who were believers, but then rejected God's grace provision, rejected the authority that God had set over them in terms of, uh, of Aaron and Moses, and who rebelled against him, and they, were, uh, they didn't believe God, they didn't trust God in the wilderness, and so they were brought to judgment. Uh, so the object of faith here is not salvation. The object of faith in that, that original circumstance in the Old Testament was related to uh, God's provision in the wilderness. But it, it's an example of the principle that God judges those who oppose him. And we'll come back because there's a lot to look at there. I just want to set that up right now. And we'll come back and look at that and begin with verse 5 next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of your grace. But that grace also means that you are gracious to those who are uh, the targets of the false teachers and that you will judge the false teachers. But that does not remove us from the responsibility of contending for the faith, that we need to contend for the faith in our own souls, in our families, and in the church. And that, that we ultimately are depending upon you to guide and direct us in that but our focus needs to be on the truth of your word and in applying that in our own lives. And we pray that we might be challenged by that in this study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.